And I want to welcome everyone um, to our service today. I know you met Pastor Tim from First Southern Baptist. My name is Pastor Rod Phillips, and I'm the teaching pastor at Gateway Bible Church. And we want to extend a welcome to you. One of the things that uh, we want to make sure you understand uh, as you come to Gateway Bible Church is that we're all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're, we're not trying to, uh, trying to trick people by by putting on a show and then slipping that in. This is why we exist. This is who we are. We're people called out by God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we hope that you see that, that you, you experience that as you come and you worship with us today. It's so good to be with you today. He is risen, my friends. All right, good. Well, I, um, I want to just take a brief moment just to highlight there are, there's a bulletin here and there's announcements for you. Um, as you probably are aware, Gateway Church, um, you know, we have been slowly trying to get ourselves up and running with some normalcy. And uh, we're really just trying to push that from, from this service on with our, our men's ministry, our women's ministry, even our student ministry. Um, there are things that are happening in our church, and you can find those, those items listed in your bulletin. So please take, take the time to, to read through that. Um, and in particular, there's going to be a baptism service at the end of this month. That's what we're planning and we're hoping for. And um, if you are a child of God, but for some reason you have yet to be baptized, uh, we would love to be able to walk you through the, the reasons why that is important as well as um, what that looks like. And again, looking at the, the last Sunday of this month as the time to do that. Then also after the service today, we have a time of refreshment set aside so that we can just kind of connect a little bit more. Uh, some of you who are kind of coming for the first time. Some of you here are visitors with us. We're so glad to have you. But we want to just fellowship together afterwards, but we will dismiss you, in a sense, by groups, just to make sure that we're kind of getting lines all established with some social distancing in mind. Also, if you are visiting with us today, notice in the back of the bulletin there is this, uh, this uh, little code that you can scan and uh, on your smartphone, um, and assuming you have a smartphone, most people do, um, but uh, that'll take you to a page where you can fill in just a, your attendance, some basic information. We promise we will not spam you. Okay, hear that? We promise we will not do that. Uh, we just want to make sure that if someone comes to our church, that we're able to connect with them, we're able to pray with them. If they have any questions and, and there's some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. So we we just want you to be aware of those things. Well, I'm going to pause right now and just take a moment to pray. Um, pray for our church, pray for what God is doing in our country, pray for our region, and just pray for the general health of our people. So would you just join me right now as we go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Lord, we come to you today just rejoicing over the fact that we could gather together uh, in the building, Lord, even with all the things that you've allowed to take place, um, and we can celebrate this Resurrection Sunday. Lord, we, we are in awe of you. You have done so much, so much more than we can ever imagine. Lord, we want to give you all the praise and the glory that you are due. But Lord, we do ask that you would strengthen um, your people today. Lord, we know that there are a number of people in our church that are gathered here this morning, or Lord, that even can't be here this morning because they're struggling with health issues. Um, and Lord, we ask that your hand of, of care and grace and healing would be on them. Lord, we pray uh, for the, the spiritual growth and well-being of our people, Lord, that you would continue to use 
the church, Lord, not just on Sunday morning, but as the church people interact and fellowship together, that, that marriages would be strong and families, Lord, would be, um, would be equipped. And, Lord, that people would be uh, just uh, more able to serve you and to see the gospel going forward. Lord, we just pray for your hand of work on your church. And Lord, we also pray for, for our country. We pray, Lord, for all the turmoil that continues to be present. And Lord, um, we, we pray for our leadership and our president. Lord, we ask for your blessing on him. We ask, Lord, for, uh, for wisdom, Lord, to be bestowed. And Lord, for your will to be done. And yet, Lord, we realize that um, not everyone that is serving in public office even cares about you. And yet, Lord, in spite of that, you are at work accomplishing your purpose. And so, Lord, we, we hang on to you, not on to what's happening in our country or even in our state. But we hang on to you because we know that, that you are still building your church. You are still drawing people to yourself. So, Lord, help us to anchor ourselves in you and trust, Lord, that we are your servants to do your will. And Lord, as we continue, as we, as we seek to, to honor you in the preaching of your word, Lord, I ask today that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, I want to just uh, mention to some of you that may be visiting this morning, our practice is typically to work through a book of the Bible. We have been for uh, a little while working through the book of Exodus, but being as it is Resurrection Sunday, we're going to pause and we're going to look at another text of Scripture, and I would like for us to stand and to read this passage together. It's not a long passage. Um, in fact, it's a, it's a short passage of Scripture, but um, will be uh, what God is going to use for us today as we come and we celebrate uh, in the ministry of the Word. So this is Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 20 through 21, and you should have a handout that has uh, all the information really that you need there to follow along this morning. Hopefully that'll be a help to you. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, this is what the word of the Lord says. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Lord, again, we ask that you would be present through the preaching of your word. Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? And allow me as your messenger today to simply be faithful to be your mouthpiece, that you and your word and, Lord, the, 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 your, your heart through that word would, would come through and that your people would be changed and more conformed to your son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, those that don't know you would be in awe of who you are because they see the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. So, Lord, bless us today. Strengthen us today, we ask now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What we have just read, this benediction, is a fitting text for us here at Gateway Bible Church. And in particular, it's a fitting text because we have gone through the book of Exodus, not finished it yet, but we've been there for about 15 months. That's 56 sermons so far on the book of Exodus. And we still have some ways to go. 
And, and we've seen in this book of Exodus, God at work through his people Israel. And, and also through the leader of the mediator, Moses. God heard their cry. He brought plagues. He delivered them out of Egypt. He led them across the Red Sea and into the wilderness in order to meet with them at the mountain. He, um, pr- he proved himself to be the great I am, the all-sufficient, self-sustaining, all-powerful, sovereign God. And he wants to be known. And so often when we've sought to connect the dots between Exodus and the New Testament, we have landed the theological gospel plane in the book of Hebrews. See, no other book in the New Testament interacts with Exodus the way the book of Hebrews does. No other book in the New Testament speaks directly to the themes and issues that we have encountered. In fact, I would dare say that one cannot really understand the book of Hebrews without having a good grasp of the book of Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch. So, I want to draw your attention back to our text, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, which sits at the end of the book of Hebrews. It's easy when we get to an end of a book to just breeze through some of the things that seem to be tacked on on the end, but they're not tacked on at all. The author of this book has thought long and hard about what he wants to say, and what he has here is a benediction, which is also a doxology. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is seeking to shepherd his people through the preaching of the word. And at the end, he lifts up his hands and he he does it over his congregation at the same time, praying for God's blessing over them. It's a grand benediction, friends. And it's pregnant with gospel truth and gospel instruction. And in particular, it's pregnant with meaning for us on this Resurrection Sunday. The first benediction prescribed in the law was given when Aaron lifted up his hands over the people after the morning and evening sacrifices. You'll notice it in Numbers chapter 6, in particular verses 22 through 27, but I'll read the heart of it. This is what he would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And it became the tradition as the synagogue was formed that the end of those meetings, the rabbi would get up and this is what he would pray over the people. And if you move into the book of the Psalms called the Psalter, you may know that there's 150 Psalms, but you may not know that those Psalms are broken up into five books. And at the end of each of those five books, there is a statement of blessing. You have them up on the screen there. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And on it goes. And when we turn to the New Testament, we find in particular in the epistles, that the writers of those epistles typically will end their letters with a benediction and a doxology. They're both prayers and offerings of praise. Let's just look at a couple. You have 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's a benediction for blessing and praise. And then Jude 24 and 25 says... 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Now, friends, what do all of these benedictions and doxologies have in common? This is what they have in common. They come from a pastor's heart for the blessing of God to be on his people and the praise of God himself. Look, as a pastor, I want to praise God, but I also care for you. And see, it gives us a little insight into what's happening here in the book of Hebrews. When when the writer of Hebrews now stands at the end of this, this, this grouping of sermons, He turns to the people and he lifts his hands and he gives this benediction of blessing and he offers this praise to God. Now I want you to notice that in our text this morning, the word now, it starts this section. This word now is a hinge word. In other words, it's a word that is packed with meaning because it's it's going back. And he's saying, based on what I've just said, For these 13 chapters, I want to say something. So he's reaching back to all that he said in those sermons. And he's picking up these major themes. In fact, these major themes are right in our text today. The death of Christ, the blood of Christ, the new covenant ushered in by Christ, the lordship of Christ, the superiority of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the special relationship God has with his people, the fact that he is the shepherd of the sheep. That's all there. Because these are themes that are throughout the book of Hebrews. And we go back again through the book of Hebrews and we hear his argument. And his argument basically goes something like this. It's all about Jesus Christ. That he is greater than the Old Testament prophets. That he's greater than the angels. That he's greater than Moses or Joshua. He's greater than Aaron or Melchizedek. He's greater. He's greater. He's greater. That's what he's screaming. And he's preaching it with passion. Because he cares about his people. He cares about his sheep. He doesn't want them to wander. He wants them to be transfixed with the glory and the majesty and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, only one person is qualified to be God's perfect son. Only one person is qualified to be God's perfect sacrifice. Only one person is qualified to be God's perfect savior. And that is Jesus Christ. So this text is all about a pastor finishing his sermon about the greatness of Christ and pleading with God to equip his church to do his will out of these glorious truths. He's not just preaching this sermon or these collection of sermons just to say, isn't this nice? He wants his people to be changed as a result of it. And one of the ways you change is you know the truth about the Savior who has come and died, that he is greater. So let's bring it all down. What we have here is a pastoral plea. Here's the proposition for the equipping of the saints by the power of the gospel. Now, brother, this is my heart. Pastor Tim, this is your heart as a pastor. 
that God's people would be equipped by the power of the gospel. And as pastors, we pray that that would be true. And in this prayer, in this benediction, we find that it is the gospel, Christ's death and resurrection, that fuels his prayer. And he presses home three points. And so this morning, let's walk through these three points together. The orchestration of God's peace, the outworking of God's perfection, and the overflow of God's praise. These will all make very good sense as we walk through this text together. First of all, the orchestration of God's peace. Now may the God of peace. Now just let that, that statement settle. This is an appeal to the God of peace. It's a familiar New Testament title. It's found six times in the New Testament. And each one of those times, it is found in a doxology. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Romans 15. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of God of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. What you've heard and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace. The God of peace. The God of peace. We serve a God of peace. Now, why do the New Testament writers use this divine title at the end of their letters? It's because the God of peace is a summary of the gospel, and it teaches us two things. First of all, it teaches us that there is a war taking place. If God is a God of peace, then it's evident that there is a war taking place, because if there isn't a war, there's no need for God to be a God of peace. You get that? He's a God who brings peace. So man is born in sin. He lives in sin. And man has declared war against God. He's chosen to go his own way, to stray from the path that God has selected for him. We all, like sheep, have gone our own way. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And man says, we will not have you to rule over us. So man has declared war against God. But what's even worse than man declaring war against God? It's God declaring war against man. Now let that settle in. Now friends, this is important because we're in a, a God is love context, aren't we? If, if there is a Christianity that's accepted in this world, it's a God is love context. And I realize that God is love, but there's a distorted view of that. Because God has declared war against man. Friends, God does not exist in a state of neutrality toward man. He does not exist in indifference. He is holy and we are sinful. The wages of sin is not a big hug, it's death. And friends, God has declared war against sinful man, and his wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of man. That is why we celebrate the gospel. That's why we have the Lord's Supper, because we're celebrating the fact that we were not the recipients of his wrath. His son was the recipient of his wrath. God's justice is poured out on his son. Why? Because God has declared war against us. 
Friends, this is a sad situation the human race finds itself in. Man is at enmity with God. God is at enmity with man. Now, what's to be done? How can these warring parties find peace? I would invite you to turn to the book of Luke in chapter 14. And while you're turning, let me just kind of summarize the argument of what's happening here. In Luke 14, Jesus is talking about what true conversion looks like. In other words, what does it look like to be a true disciple of Christ? He must love Jesus so much that it looks like he hates his own family, even his own life. He must bear his own cross. And then he talks about the importance of of counting the cost if you want to be my disciple. And he uses this illustration of a king going to war. So let's pick it up at verse 21 or 31 of Luke 14. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Let me just throw a little interpretive tool in here. The first king would represent man. The second king would represent God. Okay, This is part of the argument of the illustration. He's saying man is going out to meet this king and he realizes... Ain't no way I'm going to beat this guy. You know, he, his army is too strong and my army is too weak. It ain't going to happen. So here's what he does. <clears throat> Verse 32. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, friends, You see the point that Jesus is making. You and I can't and won't be successful in our enmity against God. Never. It won't happen. You have only one hope, and it is that God might offer you some terms of peace. And they're terms of peace that are his to offer not yours, to negotiate. Now, these are the terms of peace. So, friends, what the gospel is, is God's terms of peace. They're the only terms of peace that exist in the entire universe. And what are are the requirements of these terms of peace? Look a little bit further in Luke 14 and verse 33. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, Pastor Rod, I was expecting kind of a warm, upbeat, loving sermon today. Now, I can be warm and upbeat. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with being warm and upbeat. But, but here, here's the sense of it, guys. What help would it be for you if I'm warm and upbeat and I was not reflecting the truth and the severity of why Jesus Christ rose from the tomb? He didn't rise from the tomb to give us a big hug. He rose from the tomb because we were at enmity with him. And the resurrection is part of his wonderful terms of peace to bring about reconciliation. Now, friends, hear this. There is a war taking place, but there is also a way made possible by God. And here's what he says. First of all, there is a promise. It is a blood Covenant. God says, 
I am going to provide for you an eternal blood covenant. And that will come by virtue of my son, Jesus Christ. Yes, Abraham, God made a covenant with him. It was ratified by blood. The Israelites at Mount Sinai, they make a covenant with God. God makes a covenant with them. It's ratified by blood. But then we have this new covenant where Jesus is the sacrifice and his blood seals the eternal promise. Listen to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. It should be up on the screen if you want to follow along. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the new covenant, friends. And it's all pointing there in Jeremiah to the one who brings about this new covenant, none other than Jesus Christ himself. And Paul identifies that in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and verse 19. For in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself uh, him, him, reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. By the blood of his cross. See, friends, when we say God is a God of peace, he's not just like, oh, come on. He's like, no, no. God did something. Did something radical. Did something tremendous. He sent his son to live on this earth and to go to a cross and to be that sacrifice. Friends, That is a wonderful promise. And it's a covenant, a promise that is eternal. Secondly, not only is there a promise, but there is proof. And this is where we get in now to the resurrection. The greatest display of power is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it's the God of peace who unleashes this power to raise Jesus from the dead on the third day. And through this resurrection, God was providing validation for every one of us. So first of all, it was validation that Jesus is who he claims to be. So what's so important about the resurrection? The primary reason that there is a resurrection is to solidify and validate that what Jesus said would happen to him, would happen to him, and therefore he is credible. Now just think about the Gospel of Mark here. In the Gospel of Mark, you have these three wonderful statements in the heart of Jesus' interaction with his disciples. And all three of them talk about the fact that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be mocked and scorned, and ultimately he's going to rise again the third day. This is, this is way before he even gets to Jerusalem. I'll just read the last one because they kind of, each one kind of builds. But if you read Mark chapter 10, notice what it says. 
See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, he's speaking about himself here. He is making this claim over and over and over again. So Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, And he even claimed that he would rise again, and the resurrection proves that Jesus is who he claims to be. Secondly, not only that, the payment of of Christ on the cross was an accepted transaction by the Father in heaven. In other words, it shows us that Christ's death was sufficient. It accomplished everything that it needed to accomplish. It accomplished bearing the weight of God's wrath. He met the standard. He passed the test. Only Jesus could be God's perfect son, perfect sacrifice, and perfect savior. Now remember, these are his terms of peace. Usually when you have terms of peace, the the one who is the dominant party, who's making the rule, says, you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this, and you have to do this. In these terms of peace, what is God saying? He says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm doing this. So he's the one who's initiating these terms. And through the resurrection, he gives every man proof of the evidence that what he promises, he will fulfill. So we open our Bibles and we read a promise of God that is directed to us as God's people, the church, not necessarily Israel. Those promises are promises that are guaranteed. Why? How do we know that? Because God has proved himself over and over and over again, and the primary proof is the resurrection. And friends, if God had not raised Jesus from the dead, then we would know that his sacrifice was an unacceptable sacrifice for our sins. And he would have remained cold and in the grave. But we know that he is, he met those requirements. Now, friends, I just want to just just jump a little bit ahead here, and I want want to just emphasize this, that as we get to the book of Acts, the central thrust of all the preaching that took place in the book of Acts is the resurrection. This is what they went around proclaiming. Yes, they talked about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Yes, they talked about the things that he he taught, but the primary focal point and the proof and the thing that shocked people was the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Just listen to Acts chapter 2 and verses 22 and following. Here's Peter's words on the day of Pentecost. And just just listen to how, how penetrating what he's saying is. Men of Israel, hear these words. Pay attention is what he's saying. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst... As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Get this. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, He's saying, look, the the, the whole basis of what I'm saying here is that Jesus rose from the dead. In Acts 3, 
This is the encounter with um, the, the lame uh, man that was lame from birth. This is, where, uh, this is where Peter says, you know, I have no silver and I have no gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Right? A little bit later in that same chapter, as the people are amazed, he turns to speak to them, and this is what he says. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our father. See, he's going through the covenants here. He's going through the, the, these key moments in the history of Israel. Glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, and he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. You did this. It's a very confrontational preaching. I think that we wouldn't like it much today. But this is, this is what produced the growth of the church. And friends, it's like every time the, 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 the author or Peter or the, the, the apostles went out and they preached these sermons about the resurrection, it was like the finger of God pointing down to mankind that said, see, here's the proof, here is what I can do and will do for those who believe. And over and over and over again in the book of Acts, God points his finger to the resurrection of his son as evidence of his power and proof of his covenant promise. And at the end, not the end, but later in Acts, Acts 17 and verse 30, we read this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. My friends, hear this. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we are still enemies of God. Now, that's not a popular thing to say in today's culture. You're an enemy of God. Oh, you're talking about God loves me just the way I am. He created me this way. I mean, how can he complain? No, you're an enemy with God. And it's only through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that you can even have hope to be reconciled to him, even know who he is. So this is the proof. But then we move on to what I'm calling the provision. There's the, there's the, the, the first thing which, uh, which leads to the... Let me just jump back here. My mind's... It's the promise, then there's the proof, and then finally we have this, the provision. This is the fact that we have a shepherd. Just think about this. Walking in life all by ourselves, trying to navigate it through, having no one to help us. All of a sudden, at the moment of our conversion, we have a new relationship. And it's a relationship with one who is called our shepherd. One of our favorite psalms is Psalm 23, right? The Lord is our shepherd in the green pastures. He is our shepherd in the valley. He's our shepherd when we finally get home to heaven. 
He's our shepherd. He's our great shepherd. And we recognize that all of these descriptions of the Lord is my shepherd are foreshadowings of Jesus who will be our great shepherd. Now, friends, this special relationship exists because of this eternal blood covenant and the raising of Christ from the dead. See, friends, we're sheep. Now, I've not grown up on a farm, but I've been around sheep long enough to know that they're pretty dumb. Now, I'm not saying that you're dumb. I'll let someone else tell you the truth. But sheep are dumb. And see, sheep, they're desperate. They're lost. They're defenseless. They are desperate for a shepherd to lead them. They're the kind of creatures that need leadership. And so that's why God says, look, this, my son, will be your great shepherd to protect you, to feed you, to lead you, to lay down his life for you. And in John chapter 10, we hear those famous words, Jesus speaking, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I'll give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. When Jesus left this world, he promised the ongoing presence of another like him, a comforter. We know that to be the third person of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. So here is the good news, friends. There's a promise. It's a blood covenant. It's eternal. There's proof through the power of the resurrection. And there's a provision that Jesus is our shepherd who guides us, and he still continues to guide us. And God is saying, I am the God of peace. I can restore the enmity between us. Do you accept my terms of peace? (laughs) See, friends, that's a very important question. This is all about what is necessary for our conversion. That we embrace God's terms of peace. His terms of reconciliation. So what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's summarizing kind of like in in one verse the argument of his book. He's saying, this is what I presented to you. There is hope in no one else. The blood of bulls and goats, it it won't do it. There's only one sacrifice, one person that will accomplish what you need to be reconciled to God, and that is Jesus Christ. He is greater. But now we transition to not looking at the past, but more looking at the present for them. Verse 21. He's praying this blessing to equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So, so far in this benediction, we've noticed what God has done through Christ, how you get in, if you would. If you would. Now the prayer turns its focus to what God is doing in his people, through Christ, how you go on, if you would. In other words, God is at work molding us and shaping us to be more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And it's in that sense that we would say what we have here is the outworking of God's perfection. It's not that God is perfect. That's not the point here. That's not the way I'm using this word. This idea of perfection actually more comes from the King James Version where the word perfect is used to describe completeness, 
maturity in Christ. We call this progressive sanctification. The moment you became a believer, the moment you were converted, God begins this new process of working in you something and equipping you for his glory. And as we heard earlier today, in preparation for the Lord's Supper, baptism is a symbolic uh, a symbolic. Uh, uh, ceremony, so to speak, where we see the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that symbolism, it speaks to us. It's a picture of, of what God has done in and through us through the resurrection. We're buried in the likeness of Jesus' death, and we're raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And we're raised to newness of life. There's something new that happens the, the moment you become a believer. Change has taken place. We have an old life, but we also have a new life. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 says that wonderful verse, verse 4, but God, because he's just been describing how terrible life has been without him, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You have been made alive. And then at the end of John's gospel, we read the summary statement. Chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and get this, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now see, some people think the goal is believing. And it's like, no, that's not what John's saying. The goal is beyond belief. It's life. And that's why elsewhere in his gospel, John 10, 10, he says, I came, this is Jesus speaking, I came that they may have life and have it what? More abundantly. God wants us to live out of this new life, out of this resurrection, out of darkness, out of blindness. He wants us to live. I see parents, they, they you know, give birth to a child and come home from the hospital. And as soon as they come home from the hospital, they carry that child from room to room, explaining everything about the rooms. They say, here's the refrigerator. Whenever you want some food, help yourself. It's there for you. We've stacked it with some good stuff. Here's the bathroom. If you ever have a need, I'm sure you will. This is where you take care of that. Um, here's your bedroom. Um, you have some sleeping hours and stuff like that. Um, this bed was here for you. If you need something, just call. We'll come and we'll help. Now, of course, no parent anywhere has ever done that. They understand that this child is helpless and needs to grow. And even when we come into our new walk with Christ, this new life, God wants us to what? Grow. He doesn't just say, here's your new life. There's the kitchen, there's this, there's that. Have at it. If you need me, I'm over here. Just give me a shout. And sometimes that's how things are presented. But God say, no, I want to do something in here. God is present with us as we grow and mature to be more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says at the end of of chapter 2 of Ephesians, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So the writer of Hebrews prays now this blessing and this, he's pleading with God for these two realities to take place. First of all, it's a prayer for God to equip us. He says, equip you with everything good that you may do as well. My friends, hear this. This word equip has the idea, it's a word that's used to talk about the mending of nets or the restoring of broken bones. Anyone here have a broken bone before? No, we can arrange something for if you want to experience this word, you know, kind of, you know, show and tell type thing. Um, but, you know, if you've broken a bone, you know it's painful to be mended, isn't it? That's happened to me, and the doctor says, this is only going to hurt for a little, ah, all right? Before I could, you know, he was catching me off guard, and he pulled my arm because I broke it down at my wrist. You've probably experienced that before. That's what the idea of equipping here is mending, it's restoring, it's getting something back to its usefulness. So we were sinners because of our sinfulness. We're wounded, we're broken, we're like Humpty Dumpty having had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men, they can't put us back together again. And if you have no idea who Humpty Dumpty is, ask someone, okay? They just can't do it. And friends, we can't do it either. The only one who can restore us, who can mend us, who can get us to this place of usefulness is God. He mends. He restores. Friends, this is what happens as a result of the gospel. God not only saves us from his wrath, but he makes us whole. But God doesn't equip us so that we can live our lives for ourselves. No, he equips us in every good thing. Notice this, so that we may do his will. He mends, he restores, he heals so that we may do his will. Now, friends, it's important that we see this here. This is what we see is the, is the need for the elders of the church. Ephesians 4 verse 12 says, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Our job is to make sure we're doing equipping. Why? So that ministry can go on. Now, what kind of God would he be if he sent us off to do work and yet we are not equipped to do that mission? He equips us, friends. He equips us. He mends what is broken. That's why the word is even used in the nautical world to describe a ship that is ready to go out on its voyage. It is equipped. It means it has all its food. It has all its supplies. It has everything that it needs. And even as God speaks to Tim, as, as Paul speaks to Timothy to encourage him in 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is what he says. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, this is the work of God. He equips us. But not only does he equip us, we have here a prayer for God to work in us, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. See, God is at work through Jesus Christ to grow us toward greater and greater maturity. Now, God is equipping us, and he's at work in us. And hear this, but the process of sanctification is not holy. God, it says that you may do his will. 
so that we might do what is pleasing in his sight. That's why in scripture we read verses like 1 Timothy 4, 7, where it says, train or exercise yourself for godliness. That literally means put out some spiritual sweat. It takes work on our part to grow. It takes work as God is working in us to grow and become more and more like Christ. That's what Paul says to the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and following. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. He's not talking about conversion. He's talking about their sanctification here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work, and God is at work. There is this coming together. Your conversion is all of God. Your sanctification is a joint venture. God works in you, but he is also requiring something of you. Now, friends, there's a lot more to say. Time is is catching up with us. Um. And we need to move on. Let's jump now to this last point. Because this all leads then to something that I think is incredibly powerful. He says at the end here, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I hear this. Here we have the overflow of God's praise. This book is leading up to a crescendo. And this crescendo is landing on here to saying, God deserves praise and glory, right? Jesus saved us for his glory. He offered terms of peace for his glory. He brought Jesus up from the grave for his own glory. He he shepherds his sheep for his glory. He sanctifies us for his glory. He equips us and works in us for his glory. So when we think about the praise and the overflow of praise, we're not just talking about what happens on the Sunday morning when we're singing. This praise and this glory is what happens when we live our lives. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. So friends, it's about being a husband and wife for his glory. It's about being a friend and a neighbor for his glory. Or a colleague or a co-worker for his glory. It means being God's church and using your spiritual gifts for his glory. So why do we glorify God? Because he is worthy of our praise. But not just a little bit here and a little bit there. He deserves our glory forever and ever. Now I want to just draw your attention back to the book of Psalms. Turn to Psalm 150. This is where the, 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 the book of Psalms finishes. And the book of Psalms begins with this wonderful I don't say benediction. Blessed is the man who, right? And and there's a crescendo working in the the book of Psalms. It's it's heading up. The last five Psalms are called the, the, the Hallel Psalms. They are beginning with praise the Lord and they end with praise the Lord. Each of them do. You can see it for yourself. But what is it that is said right in the last verse, in the last Psalm? It's this crescendo and it says, let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. 
See, this is an incredible crescendo that is happening in the context of the Psalms. And what we have here in the book of Hebrews is the writer saying, look, I I have shared all this stuff with you about the greatness of Jesus Christ. How through his death, he has shed his blood and he has established an eternal covenant. I've showed you the resurrection and the, the wonder and the majesty and the proof and the evidence and the power of that resurrection. And I've shown you the fact that this Jesus is your great shepherd. And he is there to equip you and to work in you so you can do his will. What a marvelous God you have. And he is worthy of your worship. Praise him. Praise him. Glorify him. He's greater. He's greater. He's greater. And he deserves your praise. My friends, I want to bring things to a close with a few concluding thoughts. Teased out of this text. Three final applications. There could be more, but I limited it to three. Number one. Out of this text, I want to encourage all of us in this room, upstairs in the kitchen, to rise up and keep living. Hear this, friends. Something radical has happened to you if you're a child of God. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, walking in darkness and blind to God. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made you alive. You were blind, but now you can see. You're in bondage, but now you're free. And so, friends, it's important to be reminded of our spiritual conversion so that we can refresh our spiritual eyes to see the wonder of this new life that we have in Christ. I wonder, friends, maybe at, maybe at the moment of our salvation, maybe for a while after we, we were seeing life through the lens of the gospel, but today that's kind of gotten blurry and we see life through the lens of Fox News or CNN or whatever it might be, and we are discouraged, and we're burdened down, and God says, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. stop, 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 whoa. Stop doing that and start living with fresh eyes to see what I have called you to. I have made you alive. We have hope in the promises of God and the certainty of heaven. We have help with Jesus as our shepherd and the Holy Spirit as our comforter. We have him. And that is, he's called us to live for his glory in this dark and sinful world. Friends, it can be hard. This isn't the first time the church has faced difficulty. Your life really isn't that hard compared to what people have experienced in the past. But we can get so sucked in because we stop seeing with our spiritual eyes the life that God has given us. So rise up and keep on living. Secondly, rise up and keep on growing. Friends, have you stopped growing? And I'm talking here about spiritual growth. Have you become numb to the fact that God is at work in you? Have you put the brakes on working out your salvation with fear and trembling? I wonder if you're just coasting through life on the inner tube of Christian culture. 
just wherever it's going to, I'm just going to float around. This is where Christian culture is going. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. All right. And it's just no effort. No effort. No, no desire for growth. Just, I'm going to coast. I'm going to fit in. God say, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Grow. Pursue Christ-likeness. Work at your faith. It's so easy to get to the place where the cares and the responsibilities of this world are so great that we neglect our spiritual exercise. Friends, rise up and keep growing. Fight the fear that faces you. Fight the comfort of complacency. Fight the false security of simply a, a spiritual professional. I, made a, I, yeah, I walked an aisle years ago. Where's your life now? Revive it. If that is true, revive it. See that growth take place again. Keep tending the garden of your spiritual heart and keep growing, my friend. Keep living, keep growing, and then keep serving. (laughs) There's no better time than the present to reevaluate your life and come to grips that God is working in you and equipping you so that you can please him by doing his will. See, he's not equipping you so that you can go off and do your thing. He's equipping you so that you can do his thing. And maybe we're so consumed with our thing that we have forgotten about God's thing. Now, in God's thing, there's time for your thing, right? It's all about stewardship. But God doesn't want you to neglect what he's doing and why he has equipped you. So friends, in order to live, uh, in order for life and growth and service to be realized, God has established his church. And we need each other to help us live. We need each other to grow towards maturity. We need each other to use our gifts for his glory. Now, friends, what's lurking behind all of these statements, all these points of application, is the spiritual strength and motivation that can only be found in the gospel. You see, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raises us up out of the pit and and, and leads us into newness of life. These are not pursuits that we are to strive for in our own strength. These are pursuits that we can strive for in the power, the same power of the resurrection. Friends, we need to pause. We need to think that the resurrection isn't just a historical fact. It's a present reality. It fuels us to live for the glory of Jesus Christ every day single day. Now, I'd love to give you all a big hug. But more importantly, I'd love for you to know the truth of where your soul is headed and why this matters so much. Friend, if you're here visiting with us this morning, or maybe you're part of Gateway, and you just, you've gone through the motions, you, you think through you know, church, I, you know, I, I come and I'm a part of but you've actually never come to the place where you're saying, this Jesus who was crucified was crucified for me. He bore my sins. He died in my place. And he, he says this reconciliation can come if you will simply believe 
in what Jesus Christ has done. Believe that, that I'm a sinner destined for hell. But there is hope because of what has taken place on the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you want to know whether it's true or not, look at the resurrection. There's the proof. There's the evidence. Friend, would you, would you come? Would you bow your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and breathe new air? New air that comes only through the conversion power of the gospel. Lord, help us today. We have pondered much, Lord. This has been a heavy time in your word this morning. And yet, Lord, you want us to see the seriousness, Lord, of what it is that you have done for us. Lord, we we pray that we can embrace all these spiritual realities of what you have done, the way that you have paid for us, the terms of peace that you have offered. It's so wonderful, Lord, to reflect on those things, but even, even more than that, Lord, is to see how those fuel us then to be fashioned and shaped to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. You save us so that we can live for you. You save us so that we have a place in your kingdom and we can serve you, Lord. Help us to be renewed in our passion, in our desire to be your servants once again and to rest in the beauty and the glory of your gospel. But Lord, we we say all that recognizing that this could only happen because of you. And because of you, we rise up, we praise your name, and we seek to live for your glory. Strengthen us, we ask, in your precious holy name. Amen.